Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Good morning. How do you know that you're part of a family or part of a group? Uh, anyone in here part of a fraternity or sorority in college or another group that you had to go through like a process to be initiated? Um, I know in the fraternity or sorority process, there's uh, like a rush process where you sort of have to do some silly challenges sometimes to make it through to the end, and then you're in the group, you're in the fraternity or the sorority. And if you're in a family, uh, there are a few ways you can enter. You can be born into a family, you can be adopted into a family, you can marry into the family. And and I want to say that there's like this formal moment when like legally something changes, when you become part of that family, the moment of your birth or the moment of your your adoption in court or the moment before God and all your family when you get married, that sort of a thing. There's like this this moment in time when uh, you're accepted into the family or accepted into the group. Uh, But what I want to point out is that there's often a separate moment of acceptance into the family. There's a separate moment in time when uh, that process, even though it wasn't necessarily formally completed, or maybe it had been formally completed years ago, but there's that moment when that full acceptance takes place. And I want to share a story about when that happened in our lives. Um, here's a picture of Beck and myself a couple of years ago. This is, you know, just a couple of years ago. This is four, 14 years ago. Um, this, is, this picture actually took place uh, a year after the story I'm telling you, but it's the right-ish time frame, and it's in the right location. It's in my parents' old house in Little Rock. But Becca experienced a moment of acceptance into our family uh, right after we were engaged. This was before we were married. 15 years ago, Thanksgiving 2008, uh, we were recently engaged, and Becca was celebrating her first Thanksgiving with my family at my parents' house in Little Rock, Arkansas. And we were sitting down to eat, and uh, I remember hearing a commotion in coming from the kitchen, coming from the other room, coming from the kitchen. And uh, the commotion was really interesting. My, Becca was getting, was getting food. Uh, my brother Adam was with her in the kitchen also getting food. And they were having this animated conversation. And so they came into the other room, and my, younger, my youngest brother, Adam, who was all of 18 at the time, uh, was leveling an accusation at Becca. You see, they had both come to the sweet potato casserole that has marshmallows on top, and he was accusing Becca of skimming ma- marshmallows off the top and not taking her fair share of the sweet potatoes. He was accusing my sweet Becca of being a skimmer, okay, of being a skimmer. And we all, had, I mean, the good news is we all had a good laugh at the accusation. And the funny thing is my brother Adam was pointing fingers at her because he was actually the most likely to be the skimmer. Now, he's not here to defend himself, but uh, I can assure you uh, he's the most likely skimmer in our family. But in that moment, what I'm trying to point out is before we were formally married, uh, that moment sort of showed Becca that she was accepted into our family because we were willing to have this sort of joke with her, joke with her in that kind of a way. Uh, They were comfortable enough to tease Becca. And so that, I'm going to submit to you that that was the moment when she became part of the Barlow family, even though the formal part happened months after that. And I also point out that uh, Thanksgiving is a ritual holiday in our, in our society. We have a meal every year to remember uh, Thanksgiving. And every Thanksgiving, we remind Becca that she's a skimmer. You know, so that, that label has persisted to this day, uh, to this day. Even though it was unfair, uh, she still is accused of being a skimmer. Well, so this morning, we're not going to talk about Thanksgiving, although I think Thanksgiving is helpful for us to understand what Passover would have meant. 
Uh, but we're going to talk about that uh, famous ritual meal through the history of um, the Hebrew people. And I've titled this Birth Night, Birth Night. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. We'll get there in a moment. Uh, we left off uh, our story last week talking about the plagues and the battle of the gods by working through uh, the first nine of the plagues. We ended in cha- uh, Exodus chapter 10. In Exodus chapter 11, Yahweh instructs Moses to have everyone borrow jewelry. I put borrow here in air quotes because they were not going to be returning the jewelry uh, and clothes and um, from their Egyptian neighbors. And we can understand this as sort of like a reparations for slavery. And then God tells Moses what to expect with the final plague, the plague of the firstborn. Uh, What's interesting about this is that this had been foreshadowed from the very beginning of the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 4, the idea that God was going to strike the firstborn of Egypt if they didn't let his people go uh, was foreshadowed at the very beginning of this whole process. Um, Now, in chapter 12, we get the instructions for the Passover feast. And one, one thing that's really interesting for us as we read through this is to recognize that uh, throughout the first nine plagues, Israel didn't really have to do anything. They just sort of watched God work. And in this 10th plague, this is the first time now where God's going to ask something of the Hebrew people. And there's a reason for that. We're going to get to that here um, before we close today. But they had to participate in this, this ceremony, in this ritual. They had to participate in this meal. So in Exodus chapter 12, we're going to read the first 14 verses here. The Lord, or Yahweh, said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So there are several layers here that I think it's helpful for us to unpack and learn a little bit more about. Uh, First, God chose a meal that would be the foundation for remembering the Exodus for years and years and years to come. This wonderful moment of deliverance. Uh, They don't know this right now, but this is the very night where they're about to leave Egypt. Uh, We've talked about how the, the the first nine plagues took a long period of time. We read through the plagues. We can read through the account from Exodus 5 to 10. 
in a matter of 30 minutes or so. You can read it very quickly, and there's nothing in the narrative that tells you how long it took place, but uh, scholars are divided on it. We talked about last week how it could have been nine months is a pretty reasonable estimate for how long that whole process of plagues and back and forth with Pharaoh took. Um, some scholars think it was as long as three years. Now, I don't, I don't think it was that long, but I'm just getting the point across here that uh, we have a lot going on in a long period of time heading into this, but then this thing happens in one night. Everything we're reading today happens in one night. Um, and so uh, there's this amazing moment of deliverance that happens, and God chooses a meal. So why does he choose a meal? He chooses a meal because it engages all five senses. You get all the senses, and it helps people really fully remember what God has done for them. Another interesting thing about a meal is meals are communal in nature by definition, and they were instructed to eat this meal at this time with their families or with their neighbors if they were t- their families were too small. Uh, later, this tradition will change to where uh, they come to Jerusalem and celebrate this meal together in larger groups. Um, and so that remembrance was meant to be a communal thing. So choosing a meal is a powerful, practical choice. If you want a group of people to remember something year after year after year after year, uh, why not have them celebrate a meal as part of the feast? And and to point out, uh, in our culture, Thanksgiving, which I think is the closest uh, thing that we can sort of point to that's sort of like that, every time we, we eat Thanksgiving, what do we remember? We remember that moment like 400 years ago when our forefathers ate that meal with with the American Indians. So we do the same thing today with Thanksgiving. We remember something uh, special to our, our culture, our society. Uh, the second thing that I want to point out is that everything about this meal is about unity and oneness. And this is something that I didn't know until very recently. Uh, but there's a Jewish commentator whose name is Maharal. And he's quoted here in the book that I've been using quite a bit, The Exodus You Almost Passed Over by Rabbi, Rabbi David Foreman. And this is what uh, Maharal says about the Passover as a celebration of the unity and oneness of God, especially in contrast with the polytheism of Egypt. He had six things about that. The first one is the lamb is one year old. So there's our first one. We're supposed to eat the lamb as a single group. The roasted lamb, they said, and this is where I love the Jewish, uh, the Jewish commentators, they pay attention to these minute little details the roasted lamb would stay together, a boiled lamb would separate. And so by roasting the lamb, you're, you're sort of forcing the animal to stay together. Uh, next thing, the whole animal was roasted, and, and they paid attention to the fact that its head with its leg and its inner parts, it's sort of like made into like a, a lamb ball that you would roast. And so that's, that's, it would keep it together, keep it unified, keep the meat together. Another thing is no bones of the lamb are to be broken. So all the bones are to stay intact. And of course, those of us who are already prepared for the Passover echoes with Jesus' death, none of his bones are broken, right? The other thing we can think about is they were supposed to eat the offering quickly, close to a single point in time. So think about eating a meal quickly, and I eat meals quickly, so I know a lot about that. But uh, if you eat a meal quickly, the idea was it was as close to a single point, remembering it in a single point of time as possible. In other words, if you eat a slow meal, then... Uh, it's not quite a single point in time. So everything about Passover is about unity and it's about oneness. And it's about the oneness of God in relation to the polytheism of Egypt. And we talked about last week how the first nine plagues were a way for God to show Pharaoh over and over again, the people of Egypt over and over again, 
that Yahweh is the only true God, that their whole system of polytheism, the whole system that this Pharaoh had elevated himself as a God in, in all that, that all of that was getting pushed aside to show the truth. And so the Passover is part of that. The Passover is a celebration of unity and oneness. Uh, the third point I want to make about Passover is that the lack of yeast or leaven is an indication that they were not going to have time for the dough to rise. So to get uh, bre- to make bread, especially in the ancient world, to make bread, you'd have to uh, often let your dough sit overnight. And so they weren't going to have that much time. <laughs> they, didn't, they weren't going to have overnight to be able to come back and bake the bread the next morning. So they had to make uh, unleavened bread instead of conventional leavened or yeasted bread. So uh, again, they started this night in Egypt. They began this night in Egypt like every night for the prior couple hundred years. But this night they would not spend in Egypt. They were going to get sent out this very night. So there was no time to make normal bread. Perhaps the most important thing I can say about Passover is there's a transformation of sorts that happens this night, which is why I titled the sermon Birth Night. God had uh, a high expectation for his people this whole time. Yahweh has referred to Israel over and over again as his firstborn son throughout this entire account. Um, but Israel hasn't yet done anything to be part of God's family. They, they weren't yet um, in the covenant with him, other than through Abraham and through their forefathers. So there's this new covenant that's coming on the horizon. We're going to get to it in a couple of weeks. But they haven't yet gone through that marriage ceremony or that covenant ceremony that they're going to go through uh, later in the story. They haven't gone through that yet. And so God is still has sort of pushed this idea, pushed this title, firstborn son, onto Israel, but Israel hasn't done anything to deserve it yet. Uh, there hasn't been a rush period where they go through that process and they become the firstborn son. Uh, there hasn't been that ceremony. There hasn't been like a formal adoption. Uh, there hasn't even been a meal yet like Thanksgiving, uh, which they're getting their version of that with Passover. So Passover, uh, this specific meal, becomes the event where they have to do something in response to what God is telling them. And I wanted to share a little bit about what Rabbi Foreman says about this, about that Passover and how there's something that happens that night that changes them. It changes the people of Israel. So this is what he said. In what sense is Israel to be regarded as God's bekor, the firstborn? Why, how, and when, for that matter, did they receive such a designation? I'd like to suggest a theory to you. This peculiar Bekor status of Israel that God mentioned before the plagues even began, maybe it was not something pre-existing, but a hope for Israel's destiny. Maybe in the end, it would be something Israel had to earn. When? At the culminating moment of the Exodus. Maybe it was the moment all firstborn were threatened, the tenth plague, that God took possession of Israel as his own firstborn. If Israel achieved that designation, the designation of firstborn, the night they went free, it would seem that they achieved it through the Korban Peshach, the Peshach offering, the Passover offering. Somehow that offering was transformative. After all, God didn't need blood on the doorposts to distinguish Egyptian houses from Israelite ones. God wasn't missing a good GPS device. (laughs) No, the Korban Peshach actually did something It transformed the people from a band of slaves into an independent nation committed to God in a certain special way, a way that could be best described through the designation Bekor, firstborn. So I want to point out here that Rabbi Foreman is not a Christian. He doesn't have Jesus in mind as he's writing this. 
He's just thinking about the initial Passover meal. And what he's saying is, God is finally asking his people to do something in response to, what, uh, to all the things that they've seen. And they have, to, they have to do this very public act of throwing this blood on their door and having a lamb on the side of their house for like three days before that. And uh, then they're hoping that God is going to pass over them. He's, he's going to uh, protect them from the, the devourer, the person who comes to kill all the firstborn. And in that moment, that's when they get that designation firstborn. That's when they really sort of fulfill everything. This is the night that it happens. And so what he's, what he's suggesting to us, what Rabbi Foreman is suggesting to us, is that Passover is more than a meal of remembrance. Even though it is, it's meant to be a way for people to remember the Exodus for years and years to come. It, that is part of its purpose. It is meant to be a meal of remembrance. But the point is, is it's more than that. It's more than a meal of remembrance. Passover is a moment when the people of Israel become the firstborn of Yahweh. And if we want to think about it this way, the first Passover was the first supper, a first meal enjoyed between the father and his son. Let's read uh, in Exodus chapter 12, verses, starting in verse 21 here. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of, this, of his house until the morning. For Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that Yahweh will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Uh, later in this chapter, we find out that anyone who wants to be part of the people of God uh, in later years and even in this time uh, could be circumcised and then take part of this. So this is not just like an ethnic cleansing or something like that. This is not God being racist against anyone who's not Jewish. That's not the point here. The point here is, is that, uh, that people have to do something in response to what God has done. He's asking them to, sh to show him that they are going to be obedient to, to him. And we know that for years and years, the Jewish people kept this feast to help remember what Yahweh did for their people. And as a child growing up in Israel, uh, the whole point was when you went through this meal is you were going to ask questions like, why do, we, why do we eat this lamb? Why do we cook it differently? Why are we not eating normal bread? All these questions would have, uh, would have indicated to them uh, that there was a story behind it. And the parents were to tell the story behind the Passover. God did this intentionally so his people would remember the Exodus. But now I've, I've said already that there's a lot of things that God has asked them to do to be very visible, and there's a point behind all of that. Why selected lamb days in advance? Why put the blood on the door and on the lintel? Why, why do all these things that were uh, very public? Why did God want them to do that? Why was that important uh, for God in order for him to pass over and keep the destroyer from their homes? This is what Rabbi Foreman says. They were to take a sheep or a goat Deities the Egyptians worshipped, and to tie the animal up beside their beds for three days in full view of their Egyptian neighbors, 
Then in defiance of the Pharaoh that subjugated them, they were asked to slaughter this Egyptian god and to paint their doorposts with the animal's blood. It was a harrowing act of rebellion for a slave population to undertake. With the blood on their doors, they were in effect saying to their masters, to Pharaoh and to themselves, Egypt stops at this door. Within this house, monotheism reigns. See, these weren't arbitrary things that God wanted them to do to just like jump through hoops so the destroyer would pass over them. They were making a decision that night. The decision that night was, I'm going to choose Yahweh and I'm not going to go with Egypt anymore. I'm done with Egypt. And that's when they became the firstborn son. Now, why put these instructions for future generations in the middle of this powerful story of deliverance. You know, we were just reading through plague after plague after plague, and all of a sudden we get this weird thing about, like, when you do this in the future, you know, your kids are going to ask you questions, and you're going to do all these different rituals, and blah, 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 blah. Why insert that right here in the middle? Why not save that for, like, Leviticus, or save it for another part of the, of the Torah? Everybody that I, I looked at on this said, the point behind having the instructions right here in the middle of the narrative is because future generations are going to be asked to do this. And when they're asked to do this, what they're being asked to do is not just remember this meal by eating the same kind of meal hundreds of years later or thousands of years later, whatever the case might be. What they were doing, what, what this is, is in fact an invitation for us to participate in the actual original Passover. We get to go back in time, as it were, and Jews throughout history could go back in time, as it were, and actually celebrate the first Passover. Make the same decision that they were making to choose Yahweh and not choose the other gods. This is sort of a weird thought. I mean, this would be like saying when we eat Thanksgiving every year, when you go in to eat the turkey, when you, when you first take that bite of turkey or mashed potatoes or stuffing or whatever, that in that moment you become a pilgrim. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but that's exactly what's going on here, is we're being, we're being told that this transformation that takes place, this amazing moment in time that happened in Israel's history, we're being invited to that moment. We're being invited to participate fully in that moment. That's going to be important for us going forward. Now, throughout the history of the people of God, we know they had ups, high highs, and they had pretty low lows. And uh, the Passover plays a role in that too. Um, they don't celebrate the Passover as frequently as probably they should have. Um, we know that in a perfect world, the whole calendar uh, was reframed around the Passover. At the beginning of the passage, we said, this for you will now be the beginning of months. Well, that hadn't been the beginning of months for them for thousands of years. And now the whole calendar is being reframed on this Passover moment. And so throughout history, the people of God would have thought about that if they thought deeply about that. They could have thought about how the whole calendar was reframed around Passover. Uh, we know that the plague of the firstborn is mentioned in Psalm 135 and 136. Uh, there are several Passovers that are mentioned in history, but like I said, probably not a lot because it sounds like they didn't really celebrate the Passover that much like they were supposed to. Uh, we know King Hezekiah holds the Passover in 2 Chronicles 30. Uh, King Josiah holds the Passover, and that's mentioned in 2 Kings 23 and also in 2 Chronicles 35. And Ezra holds a Passover uh, mentioned in Ezra 6. Uh, those Passovers were all about 100 years apart, and they were all um, like six or 700 years after this original Passover. And these are most of the Passovers that are mentioned in the Bible. There, there's one in the wilderness that gets mentioned. Uh, there's one in Joshua that gets mentioned. And then there's these ones. 
So as far as we know, they didn't celebrate the Passover very much, and they were supposed to. They were supposed to. Uh, what we do believe is after the exile, after the people come back in, in the time of Ezra, uh, the people of God are more faithful to keep that Passover yearly. Uh, for example, Jesus grew up going to Jerusalem to do the Passover yearly, as it was recorded in Luke chapter 2. And then when we get to the death of Jesus, it's fascinating that Jesus chose the time of his death, obviously in accordance with his father's wishes, and they chose the Passover. Let's, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 22. That's where we'll close. So the, the, the key point, there are two key points here about Passover that we're going to carry forward here. And that is, first, Passover is transformative. Something happens because of Passover. And second, we're, we're invited through Passover to be part of that initial moment of transformation. Those two things were true of the original Passover. So with that in mind, let's consider again the Last Supper. Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I'm going to pause here for just one second. Uh, scholars are divided as to whether he actually ate the Passover or not. The majority view is that this is not the actual Passover meal, but was the night before the Passover meal, that he died as the actual Passover the next day. But there's no need to be dogmatic about it. So that's the most likely scenario, I think. Verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What's fascinating is Jesus doesn't really explain his death uh, to his followers in any other way uh, besides what's, re uh, what's recorded here about him in the Last Supper being a commemoration of the Passover. He explains the meaning of his death by invoking the symbolism of that first supper, that Passover. There are three main components to the story. There's the animal sacrifice, there's the people saved, and the thing that they are saved from. And here... On the slide, we can see that we have the original Passover was the lamb. That was what was sacrificed. The people that were saved were the Hebrews. Uh, and I would say anyone else who wanted to be a part of it, we know that a mixed multitude left, so it's likely that a mixed multitude also celebrated the Passover. But certainly the Hebrews were the main ones invited. And then they were saved from Pharaoh, slavery to uh, that power specifically. Um, and then in the final Supper, the Last Supper, we have Jesus is the one who dies, we have anyone invited into it, and we have the devil, sin, and slavery to the powers as being what we're saved from. So this is a greater Passover. The Last Supper is a greater Passover. The commemoration of communion is a greater Passover. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to me that we have the ideas of Old Covenant. We have the idea of New Covenant here mentioned here in the passage. Um, and so as Christians, when we think about uh, communion, when we think about the Eucharist, we think about the importance of the New Covenant in all of that. Um, there's a lot that can sort of swirl in our minds as we take part in communion. And this is what Tim Mackey said about this in a sermon on the Eucharist or on communion. 
He says, Jesus is making all these ancient symbols have new meaning. He truly believed that this night and what would follow in the next days was the turning point. There was a new exodus that was about to take place. And he was the lamb. Jesus was convinced that what happened in that small room, that quiet night, that last meal, that that was an event of significance for all of humanity, all places, all times. Something was about to happen that would mean an exodus, a freedom from slavery, not just for his tribe, Israelites, but for the whole world. So here we have the original Passover and what it meant and how it was meant to be commemorated and participated in every year after that took place. And like I said, it didn't quite get celebrated every year, but it should have, it should have. But now Jesus, when he goes to die, when he's about to get on that cross, the way he explains his death to his followers is by saying, I wanted to eat this Passover meal with you, but I'm actually going to be the Passover. And this is how you remember my sacrifice. Jesus, as the new Moses, was leading his people out of slavery to the powers and into a new way of living, into a new way of living. Now, with this in mind, I want to return to the end of the quote we read earlier from Rabbi Foreman. And I, again, it, it, when I first read this quote, it actually floored me because I'm like, this guy doesn't know about Jesus. He's just thinking about the original Passover. He's not thinking about any of these New Testament applications we could make. But let's reread this. And instead of thinking about Passover, I want us to think about communion or the Eucharist and about Jesus' death. Somehow, that offering was transformative. After all, God didn't need blood on the doorpost to distinguish Egyptian houses from Israelite ones. God wasn't missing a good GPS device. No, the Corban Peshach, the death of Jesus, actually did something. It transformed the people from a band of slaves into an independent nation committed to God in a certain special way, a way that could be best described through the designation Bakor or firstborn. See, the point that I'm trying to make this morning is, is that something happened at that initial Passover. The people went from, the Hebrew people went from being uh, a people of promise, a people that God had high hopes and high dreams for, into something more real and tangible. They became the firstborn of God, the firstborn of Yahweh. And when the people of God throughout time kept that Passover feast, they were participating in that original exodus. And when they did that, they were transformed into the firstborn of Yahweh as well. So you think about that as an ancient Israelite, you go through hundreds of years later, you go through Josiah's uh, Passover, you go through Hezekiah's Passover. In that moment, you're participating in the original Passover. In that moment, you become the firstborn of God. That's when you become the firstborn. That's when you come into that relationship. Something even greater happened at the cross 2,000 years ago. The final Passover sacrifice was made. What's interesting about this is we don't become the firstborn through communion or through the death of Jesus. Jesus was the firstborn son. He was the firstborn. And said the firstborn holding on to his power, his privileges, his ability to just rule and reign and his ability to be perfect he gave all of that up. He sacrificed all of that for us. And now, 
we're not transformed at the Passover meal. We don't transform ourselves by commemorating the Passover meal, although there's still great uh, beauty in celebrating Passover. I'm not saying you shouldn't celebrate Passover. What I'm saying is that's not how we do it anymore. We don't participate that way. How we do participate, how we are transformed, how we remember that transformation is by our association with Jesus, the actual Passover lamb, the firstborn son. So when we participate in communion, when we participate in the Eucharist, we remember our place, not in the first exodus, but in the final exodus, the exodus of Jesus, the one that's currently in motion. We remember the sacrifice of our Lord. We remember our former lives before Christ. We remember the good news of the plan that God has to restore the world. We remember our small place in the story of God. And just as the original Passover was about unity, it was about the oneness of God and about the oneness that he wanted to experience with his people, think about that in light of communion, communion, fellowship, oneness. That's what it's all about too. It's about fellowship with God. It's about fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. It's about fellowship with each other. That's what it's about. So I want to close our sermon this morning with an invitation. Um, those of you who are here, mostly I'm thinking about the people that are online. Um, if you haven't yet made the decision to follow Jesus, I encourage you to do so. Yahweh desires your fellowship. He wants you to be part of his family. He desires your heart. And those of us who are following Jesus, uh, we are going to take communion together here in a few moments. And when we do, I want us to remember that what we're being called to participate in is the death of Jesus and also his resurrection, his life. Both of those things are incredibly important. We have to understand that our old lives are dead. No more are we living in Egypt. We've given up that part of our history. That's all, that's all gone. And we're going to walk into the newness that God has for us through his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for that original Passover, how you protected your people from the destroyer, and for your desire for us to remember these things, for your people to remember these things throughout all of time. Father, just like the original Israelites, we're, always, we're not always faithful to remember like we should, and we ask for your help with that. Help us to remember, help us to uh, hold on to that calling and that transformation that you've given us. Help us to see ourselves the way that you see us in that fresh and new light, and the plans and purposes that you have for us um, that are only good. So I thank you for this opportunity today to remember the sacrifice of your son and what it meant and what it means and what it will mean for all of eternity, Father. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.